Hey there, med school keeners. MD Consultants is the best company out there for application review and interview prep. You'll work with a customized consultant to get the best chance at admission to one of your top schools. Visit mdconsultants.ca and enter code orthopod15 for 15% off packages for pre-med students. Visit mdconsultants.ca, code orthopod15, and get into the med school of your choice. I'm very excited to present my interview with Dr. John J.P. Warner. In brief, Dr. Warner is currently the chief of the Mass General Hospital Shoulder Service and a professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. He's done it all, serving as past president of the Shoulder and Elbow Society, authoring over 200 publications, textbook chapters, and books, and participating in clinical and basic sciences research, garnering him over 30 international, national, and regional awards. He's also been involved in innovation, taking courses at Harvard Business School, and invested with some companies that are on the leading edge of orthopedic tech. We discussed some of this in our conversation, particularly talking about the paradigm that orthopedic innovators need to have, some of the barriers to optimal value-based care, and the need to measure yourself throughout your career. Plus, at the end, there's a bonus talk about his vision for resume versus legacy building, particularly the impact that he wants to leave on the world. This is a phenomenal conversation it's so densely packed with life-changing information. For me, after this chat, I signed up for an innovation program for healthcare providers through my university. I guarantee that this episode will spark that desire to innovate, to change, to better yourself, and infuse you with the mentality to be the best surgeon you can be. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so so we're talking about building your brand. So what what do you think are the best things that a young trainee can do to invest in their brand? If we talk about the concept of brand, that's how you stack up against the other brands in the room or on the Zoom for that matter, if you're looking at a job. Um, and I think people, before I go into what they should do, let me try to explain that. Who you are is your brand and that changes over time. I'm not talking about giant brands like Mass General Brigham where I work or um, for that matter, Google or any other major organization. Um, I'm talking about you. And so uh, I think that um, you should think from a 360 degree view, and that is how, to, how do I see myself? How do people see me? Sort of a looking glass concept. And if you saw my talk, you said you went on, on the Cobb and Shoulder Society. There was a talk I gave uh, for the Thorndike lectureship earlier, la- well, late last year. Um, entitled Leadership Without a Title. And it was all about the, the personal elements of leadership and, and more or less in brand development to be a leader. It's about a 45 minute talk, it's of relevance because it was directed at all of my peers and residents and others and kind of discussed the journey that I've made and then my understanding about what it is to develop yourself and what it is to be in a leadership position. Yeah, you're one of the most phenomenal speakers I've ever uh, seen. Um, I think you just have a way of speaking where as an audience, we're captivated by your words and uh, your message really hits home. I, I watched a number of your talks and... Yeah, thank you. Um, I, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it's because I try to give the talk with some empathy for who's listening. Because whenever I give a talk, I try to think about who's in the audience and what do they need, not to what, what do I need? Many people who lecture in meetings you may go to, be the industry meetings or other meetings, are thinking in large measure about themselves and their perspective, not about their audience. And consequently, they may speak over people or they may artificially inflate their message because of their ego gratification in doing so. That, you see that in politics every day. Absolutely. You know, it's an important point to understand who you're connecting with whether you're negotiating, looking for a job, or just giving a lecture, and then make it about them less than less about and less about you. Do you mind just quickly going into just how you ended up being a shoulder specialist, your passion for the field, and what you hope to accomplish as a shoulder surgeon? 
the answer to all those questions is every decision I've ever made in my life has been based on a combination of things that Simon Sinek talks about in his book, um, Start With Why, and they have to do with my analytical approach to the problem, this or that, what decision do I wanna make, and my gut feeling. And so if you ask why I went into shoulder surgery, the first question would ask, why did I become a doctor? And my particular story is that I'm a fourth generation physician. So my great uh, grandfather personally knew the Mayo brothers. My grandmother was the first woman to graduate with a medical degree from the state of Ohio. And uh, my mother, my father, my grandparents, many uncles were all doctors. So I was the first of four and that's all I ever heard. And so it was kind of ingrained in me um, and the part of it that's interesting is that when I applied to medical school, I decided I won't go anywhere where anyone in my family has gone because I want to make sure that whatever I achieve is without any question, not related to nepotism. That was maybe smart, maybe dumb, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, through my training, I went in different, many different places. But let me come back to the question. I was going through my residency and like most all of the uh, procedures that I was exposed to, I was a little bit not so thrilled with pediatric orthopedics because you really have two patients. You have the patient in front of you and the parents. The patient in front of you is very easy. The parents are the problem. And so I, I wasn't that thrilled with that. Um, I, I thought we had the best teachers, certainly at Harvard in the pediatric area. Um, I think joint replacement was interesting, but you know this was a long time ago and joint replacement was, it was like, let me give you an example. From a technology point of view, I did inorganic chemistry in college with a slide rule. I wasn't allowed to use the new calculators that were out at the time and they were barely out anyway. So that wasn't so great. So what I realized was the sweet spot was shoulder. Now why? My aha moment came in the recovery room after a surgery I had at the Mass General. And I was operated on by a famous orthopedic surgeon sports doctor. And I'd seen a number of people when I started to develop pain in my shoulder, which actually was from uh, swimming a lot. And frankly, I, I was like a workout junkie. It's my coping mechanism. So I was swimming some, I'm not like, I wasn't like a competitive swimmer. I was swimming like six, 7,000 yards uh, at a time sometimes. And I developed shoulder pain. At the time, I went to different people, famous people. For the most part, they didn't know what they were doing. I actually reached out to Rich Hawkins, a fellow Canadian who at the time was in London, Ontario. And he said, oh yeah, I know what this is. This is what it is. And this is what should be done and blah, blah, blah. So um, I had a surgery uh, and, and an arthroscopic surgery at the Mass General Hospital. I still don't know what the surgeon thought he was doing, but I was naive at the time. And when I woke up in the recovery room, my best friend had been, my fellow resident had been scrubbing on the case. And the surgeon came to me, the attending and said, uh, something, I don't remember what, it didn't make any sense to me. Maybe it was my fog or him. And when my buddy came and talked to me, I said, did he know what he was doing? He said, no, not really. And that aha moment inspired me. And as I looked into it pre-internet, the shoulder was completely a black box. I mean, you had all these professors walking around acting like their ego were the reason why you should you know, follow what they did. There was extremely poor science. And, uh, I'll skip forward. I had a number of shoulder surgeries before I sorted it out. And I said, this is for me, this is great. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And uh, so I spent the early part of my career trying to define the basic science through biomechanics and such for why instability happens and why it doesn't happen and what are the, the things that affect it. This was, you know, now we have an explosion of information in this, but in those days, teeny. So it was a, it was a personal experience that generated my passion and desire to pursue that, that particular angle in my career. And it wasn't initially just that, there wasn't enough business. I did sports as well. Um, I think by the time I came to Harvard eight years into my career, there was no room for knees or anything. It was just overloaded with shoulder. So that's kind of my personal journey. That trait of yours where you like to venture into areas where not many people have been or there are incomplete solutions is a theme that I've seen throughout your career. Uh, particularly with uh, experience in business school. You know, you said you were the only surgeon in Porter's class. And I think that's what makes you so unique is that you have tremendous passion for research. Uh, you've designed clinical trials that, across the world, but you also have this innovation and business side. And that's frankly why people like me and my colleagues look up to you. 
let me just fill in. Let me just make a suggestion to whoever may be watching this. Yeah. My thoughts about research and writing an academic paper are maybe very different than what I hear nowadays. I mean, they're actually we actually are converting, moving to a compensation plan that values publications and things of that nature. Having discussed with Mo Bandari, uh, your fellow Canadian and one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, the role of evidence, of which nobody's more qualified than him to say, his assessment, which is similar to Ioannidis, who you referenced, yeah. is that much of the data we use is terribly flawed and not really accurate. And so what percent of all orthopedic published papers do you believe are level four case studies or, or small cohort groups versus randomized, large N. And there's very, very few that are in the latter. And yet we use the level four poorly um, developed thought of studies to answer questions for which I could care less about the answer. And there's a lot of, I think the best word for it is most of orthopedic research is derivative, meaning it's just reinventing something that came before. And for that matter, most innovation is derivative. Because if you really, really want to make that big step and break through the status quo, it's unbelievably expensive emotionally and financially. And the regulatory pathway or other barriers there, whether it's a peer review, are extremely difficult. And a perfect example would be Paul Gramont, who thought of reverse prosthesis, I mean, I don't know how many, de many decades ago, and was roundly criticized for his thinking. And if you look back in JBJS, there was a commentary by Charlie Rockwood raising the question as to the ethics and appropriateness of reverse prosthesis. A brilliant leader who never did one of those operations, and yet his opinion was offered as an editorial in the JBJS. So you see what I'm saying is you have to think, it's, it's trite to say think outside the box because everybody likes to use that term and it's BS because very few people do it. But real intelligence is taking what you have available to you and then building something unique with it not simply regurgitating it as a basis for derivative thinking. You know, you shared an article about the Stanford biodesign program. Mm -hmm. And what I loved is the rules for innovation. Uh, you know, don't say no, get as, you know, start from the basics and ask stupid questions and get as wild as you can with your solutions. Uh, I was wondering if you've ever taken a course like that in person, or if you've ever um, kind of had the chance to innovate any new technologies, implants or procedures uh, First of all, I've never been to Stanford. Um, I was connected to them by a recommendation of somebody just in terms of reading it. And, and I, I think that's an incredible program. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, if I have a regret, it's a regret is I didn't develop this way of my thinking earlier in my career. Then again, I had the blinders on for the resume build and the rest of it. But that said, places like that are unique because one thing entrepreneurism and innovation does for most is it broadens your view. When we go into specialization and we become physicians, we narrow our view and we lose that peripheral vision. There are, Regina Herzinger was one of my professors at Harvard Business School. She's um, uh, an expert in healthcare and um, the elements of that. I mean, Michael Porter is, there are many people that are in that area, but one of the things that she talked about, which I think I posted to Codman Shoulder Society, were the factors, the framework for innovating in healthcare. And there are three major factors. One is technology. We develop a new technology that improves things. Two is um, consumerism. So we develop an innovation that helps the consumer, the patient. That might be telemedicine, for example. Although you might call it technology, it really is um, a consumer innovation. AS ambulatory surgery centers are a consumer innovation. Uh, and then there's integration. And integration, I put in the same category as compounding interest. It, it grows and grows and grows over time. Integration means that you have the, the broad enough vision to take something from here and something from there and put them together and create something unique. That, that's real intelligence. That means that you can recognize that something here that's been sort of maybe having some impact if brought over here will, will be a catalyst for something even bigger. And to think that way is extremely difficult because your barrage, there's so much noise we get every day. So, uh, you know, I come back to Codman Society. I created that to deal with my own frustration of my inability to think that in that fashion in my institution and, uh, and to influence others to try to think that way. And so I'm not original. I'm just 
posting things I've read that may stimulate people to think the way I'm suggesting now they might. All of the articles are thought provoking. And, uh, you know, I love the way that you break down healthcare innovations. Michael Porter, very critical of, of healthcare innovations over the past, particularly the past half century. You know, I was wondering, do you think that there, there is any innovation on the horizon that can, can solve what you perceive are some of the bigger issues facing American healthcare right now? Yeah, it's too big a question, but so let me just chip at it with a little, with a little teeny ice axe, okay? Give me a big, uh, big ice mountain here. So um, yes, I think there are some innovations underway right now that are already changing healthcare. The problem with healthcare in the United States is there's, it's not that it's too expensive, that's for sure. That's a symptom. It's a symptom of a non-aligned system. When you say the word value, president of my hospital, the institutional, the president of the, um, of the, of the vendor of the company that provides the products that we use, me, my patients, and the government all have a different idea what that means. And therefore, they have different purposes. And therefore, it's a constant multi-directional tug of war. We're completely malaligned and prices go up and up. From a, just again, my opinion, I'm not an economist, but if you look at the evolution of healthcare post-Obamacare, the regulatory environment and some of the other things put in place have created an unprecedented opportunity for merger and acquisition. The pandemic for sure created many small physician groups that were distressed financially that are ripe for acquisition by a large academic medical center. Now, what happens when the, all the different airlines merge into one or two or three? Your prices go down or up? Prices go up. You have an exactly. And so I call it Kaiserization of American healthcare. So what you see is we move towards a larger model of whether it's Kaiser or Cleveland Clinic somewhat. I mean, Toby, Toby um, the former uh, CEO of Cleveland Clinic, Toby Cosgrove, might argue about that. But, you know, my institution, for example, has rebranded itself the name of two institutions, uh, Mass General Brigham. And my institution, one of them, has its own health insurance policy program. For, and its, its employees are only allowed to use that. Sound a little like Kaiser? And if you look at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and I may be wrong on the, on the de details, but I think it's similar. University of Pittsburgh was told by Blue Cross Blue Shield, your prices are too high. So the University of Pittsburgh created its own healthcare insurance program. Then Blue Cross Blue Shield in that area bought the competitor of University of Pittsburgh, Allegheny General. So a large hospital created an insurance system and a large insurance system bought a hospital. Where do you think that leaves doctors? <laughs> I mean, we're completely commoditized. We're just one of many moving parts. In fact, it's like a giant chess game with lots of pawns. That, that's sort of how I see it. So it becomes extremely difficult to have an impact within your own institution unless you direct your career growth into the administrative pathway. And then you're spending more time managing up than you're managing down. That's an important point. Then you can't really initiate the changes if you want to keep your job. So... In my way of thinking, the only way to really innovate and make a difference is to do it outside of that environment, unless you're developing something in a lab. And, and over time, if you have the courage and the wherewithal to stand up through the ups and downs, you will change things, potentially. This has happened with many, many different areas. Uh, let's, let me talk about something that's familiar, for example, knotless anchors. Concept for knotless anchors in instability repair, let's say, came from a guy who was in private practice, who did a fellowship and went and thought about things and created this. That's just one of so many different concepts. Um, it, Christian Gerber likes to talk about this stuff and it's one of the talks that I borrowed some of his ideas from. If you look at people that have changed the world in orthopedics, Charnley, Grammont, um, and more, contemporane more contemporaneously, just to name someone, Reinhold Gans. Reinhold Gans, for example, created the entire um, area of hip preservation, which led to arthroscopic treatment of femoral acetabular impingement and other things. He did it with no grants. He did it towards the end of his career without an, an academic uh, appointment that really gave him leverage. And many people probably don't know that. I think most people would remember Gramont. Gramont was widely criticized and he wasn't a major academic player. Um, and if you look at Charnley, you know, there wasn't really this academic, non-academic scenario back then, and he created the entire world of hip arthroplasty. So they 
my, my sense is they did it in, a, in an environment that was much different than now, but they did it with a freedom to think and not be troubled or impeded by regulatory and other requirements that got in their way. Um, you know, one of the advantages of getting older is you can look backwards. There's a lot more room to look there and then looking ahead is very difficult. I mean, America is so, so well known for especially orthopedic innovation. I think maybe something about that environment just promotes creativity, uh, you know, that spirit of innovation and willing to try risks. Let me throw you a bone for the Canadian system. Okay. In fact, I wore my Canadian cufflinks. <laughs> okay. Um, so Canada is a much smaller co- country, but, you know, of the, of the, all the companies I've been involved in and developing and being a part of and investing in, the first company I, I uh, was involved with that was purchased was a Canadian company from Calgary, and that was Tenant Medical. And the spider arm holder, I was pleased to be part of the development. So there's a, there's a minor item, but makes a difference from Canada. One of your guys right now is on the forefront of development of virtual reality. That's Danny Goyle, who was my fellow many years ago, but who has the courage and uh, vision to get the right people in the room to make virtual reality immersive training a major part of of education which yeah I think we're having him on the podcast in two weeks i mean i i think that's uh there's a perfect example can you imagine interviewing i'm not going to put him in the same category as bill gates or you know steve jobs but you know at the time they were doing this so let's let's talk about amazon i mean at the time this was going amazon started as a, a bookseller in a garage for that matter Google started in a garage as well. And the person who saw the value, who gave them the funds to develop it, wrote a whole book about, about measuring the right thing. And so you asked me before about what's going to change healthcare. There are several things and there's a lot of technology involved. It's a given that AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning is going to change everything in your lifetime in the way we perform orthopedics. It's already done it in radiology. And artificial intelligence is all about machines having the ability or having the potential or programming to do what we as humans now do, but do it better and faster. That lends itself to certain things, not others, whether it's pattern recognition. Robotics in the, in the, uh, in the uh, surgical operating room still requires some in, in, in input from the physician, but that will grow in its significance, provided we can navigate the cost issues and the uh, um, innovation component of that. But AI is gonna be really important. Right now, for example, I'm helping a company develop AI decision-making for surgeons that allows them to differentiate what's the best you know, treatment for somebody with this type of glenoid versus that type of glenoid, and then auto plan so that the component configuration and selection is best selected according to the analysis for what's gonna give the best motion. So that will change in a huge way because it will innovate and giving people answers so that they don't make mistakes in their assumptions and doing it much faster than they could if they're looking at things and comparing them and trying to figure them out. I think that sort of an approach for anybody doing orthopedics who's young is going to be the major shift in the future. That and, and the proposition of value-based care from the standpoint of understanding what are you getting for the cost of, of what you're delivering, you know? Hey, are you looking to boost your MCAT scores? Let me tell you about Prep 101. Prep 101 takes a comprehensive approach to MCAT prep. They teach you all the science, help you master the challenging passage-based format, and they hone your critical thinking and reasoning skills. When you nail these three areas, knowledge, skills, and strategies, you'll get that score. They offer 138 hours of live instruction, more than any other company. They also devote more time to guided practice and have more live instruction hours on that tricky cars section. All of this adds up to a prep course that offers more of everything you need to get top scores. So make sure you check out prep101.com casting and use discount code 350castingpod for $350 off their course. Again, if you're trying to get into school this fall, check out prep101.com casting and use discount code 350castingpod. Yeah, value-based care uh, is an interesting book. In in the book, Porter talks a lot about measuring outcomes. Measure like value is the amount of 
money spent per relative to the measured outcome of patient care. Do you think that the way that orthopedic research is done now with patient reported outcome measures, you know, uh, all the accepted uh, scales kind of makes it ripe for comparing our treatments and the value, the relative value through like cost utility analyses? So let's go back a century. And if we go back to the time of Codman, Codman actually considered value-based care. And he not only understood that when you do a rotator cuff repair, the one that succeeds is less expensive than the one that fails. He did that analysis, but he understood the beginning and the end of value-based care. Well, he didn't name it that. He called it the end result concept. The beginning and end is measurement. And we're not even, you know, forget measuring cost right now because there's an unbelievable lack of transparency. And frankly, the accounting systems of many institutions don't allow you to analyze cost per case. It's impossible. The accounting principle is sort of what my professors call the peanut butter approach. You take all the costs and spread them over multiple procedures and then average them. Who's the hero here? Who's generating revenue? Who's losing it, et cetera. But coming back to Codman, by measuring what you do, you, you start to understand what the outcome is in terms of, if I operate on 100 people for this problem, what percent are happy, what percent are not happy, what percent had additional treatments, et cetera. That's the beginning of value. If now you're able to actually look at the true costs, and there's a huge argument about what's true costs. If you're the hospital, you think one thing. If you're someone at HBS like Bob Kaplan, who's the world's authority on, on accounting methodology, you think another thing. But if you can put those things together, you really can understand cost. People get confused all the time about between cost and actually charges and actually payments. And um, that's why this is so difficult. To, to really portray value. And to be fair, I create value all the time that doesn't necessarily create value for me. And the paradox here is that surgeons get paid, at least in our system, when they operate, and they get paid a whole lot less when they don't operate. Now, I don't mean to say that everybody's out there to do what's right for them, but it is a uh, bias. It's a confounding variable. I'm also, I'm not a communist. I'm not in favor of necessarily paying people a salary. Um, but we're involved right now in changing our compensation plan to reflect the proper values, which it hasn't over many years. And uh, I'll get in trouble if I dig deeper into the weeds on this, but, but I, you know, Porter's book is complicated and large for a reason and it's, it's dated, right? He's written so much more since then. If you were, want to know more about global healthcare, read Regina Herzinger's book on who killed healthcare. And that'll give you insight into different healthcare systems relative to ours. Right. Yeah, it definitely seems like every healthcare system is susceptible to an arguably large portion of bad actors. You have all the people who try to do the best for the patient, but you do have people who gain the system and take advantage. And these are the people who may be taking up a large portion of excessive costs, doing excessive procedures, excessive billing. Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's true in a fee-for-service model, and then there are many other models that are out there, capitation and population. But even in capitation, you, you would have bad actors. Game the opposite way. Okay, yeah. the less I do, the more I keep. You know. Yeah. But um, you know, I mean, <laughs> the American healthcare system, particularly now that the pandemic has sucked out even more money, um, is in large measure in crosshairs of the target line of the of the government it cannot possibly continue to grow the way it's been growing. And also making it equitable, equitable is, is exceptionally difficult. Now in Canada, I know you have a, a government single payer system, but some, in some instances you don't. Different parts of Canada, as I understand it, have different opportunities and scenarios. Human nature is to improve your, your circumstance and that includes money. So there's nothing bad about it. It's just the reality of how we think. That said, I think, you know, Codman's original concept was if you operate on someone, he, he wrote this actually, if you operated on someone and they didn't do well or had a complication, you should give them their money back. Hmm. Can you imagine that? And so I, I sometimes muse that if I gave a guarantee on my outcomes and was paid a fair market value, not the, you know, not the pittance that you get with government insurance. And to be fair, in America, we have this wide range of payments for the same procedure. That's our system. But if you had a warranty on outcome for things that like an ACL or a rotator cuff, things we know 
what we have some reasonable benchmarks for, and you paid for the quality of the service, not just the service, everyone would be better off. In the United States of America, we are paid for the service, not the quality or the outcome of that service. I'm only talking about surgeons. I am not talking about primary care doctors or internists or other folks like that. Right. Yeah, no, there's this disconnect. You know, you, you think I, when you're at my stage, you want to be the best surgeon possible. You know, you want to be this, the best orthopedic surgeon, but you read Porter's book and talk to you and you realize that there's no reward in the same sense where a tech company would be rewarded for having the best tech product by having, being able to charge the highest prices. Um, there are artificial, in Canada more so than the States, there's artificial uh, prices. Like in Canada, you have to set, charge a set amount per procedure um, and it's billed to the government insurance. You know, I think here's what happens, what, what has happened, Regina, Regina Herzinger talks about this. I think she did anyway. Um, we get um, medical refugees. And by that, I mean people with very bad problems who've had failed treatments, who then seek a solution. And those surgeons who elect to do these complex problems do frequently have a much lower value for themselves than people that are just churning out simple arthroscopies. You know, for example, if you look at a total shoulder replacement with Medicare coverage, and you look at an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair with coverage from a, a typical um, healthcare plan like Blue Cross Blue Shield, it's very clear that for the episode of care, the surgeon benefits significantly more from the rotator cuff repair than the shoulder replacement, okay? And so what do you see, what I've seen? I analyze the numbers and look at what's happening with behavior. I, I've seen one individual in my own organization who over the years has progressively increased the volume of rotator cuff repairs and decreased the volume of shoulder arthroplasty. I guarantee you this plays all over the world in varying degrees, depending on, on who's doing it. That's just the nature of how we do it. We even have RVUs that uh, have been uh, somewhat arbitrarily conceived of um, as some surrogate for dollars that provide value for what you're doing. It, it's a very difficult proposition because there will be some people listening to this outside thinking, well, that's ridiculous. You know, I'm just here to help the patient. That's my calling. And then there are other people that'll be going, yeah, I agree, you know? Even in, as a medical student, we hear in the OR people talking about compensation, talking about billing, um, you know, it's life. It's, but yeah, I think, I think the issue of fair compensation, Porter argued, is really only seen in the cosmetic world. Like the cosmetic world is, is the only one that acts as a free market that, you know, adheres to the, pro, the principles of innovation like other industries. So it seems like what complicates things are the government, insurance, uh, basically everything that isn't just a doctor and the patient. Because if it were just that sort of simple transaction, it would behave more appropriately. But then you'd have a bunch of people who just couldn't afford orthopedic surgery. Yeah, I, I, it's a big dilemma. Let me give you a, a, a very short um, insight into a case study of a organization of doctors that do provide value, in my opinion. Um, and it's the case study about the Martini um, uh, prostate cancer group in, in Germany. Um, this was a group of individuals that came together uh, the founder of the, of the entity was a urologist and their focus was prostate cancer surgery. And what they all agreed on is they would measure their outcomes, uh, metrics like margin for margins, free resection and um, low complication rates. Those were, those are meaningful measures. And what they did is they built a business model that guaranteed outcomes. And when they were, this is a case study, when they were compared to the market out there, the rest of the German market. Their five-year survival rate was 95% for prostate cancer. Uh, the outside market was 94%. That was not really, di under, really differentiated. However, their incidence of impotence and incontinence was about five times lower than the rest of the marketplace. Pretty compelling value, isn't it? And they measured and anybody who fell below their standard in the, in the group had to be mentored by somebody above that standard in order to demonstrate that they were at that level or they would have to leave the group. And the interesting case study here is that the founder of the group fell below that level and had to be mentored by one of the junior guys. Now, how's that for creating value? Now, 
to be fair, I mean, the German system, it, it wasn't like they're getting paid lots and lots of money for this. But the reality was, if I understand correctly, they became the single largest referral center in the world for prostate cancer treatment as a consequence of this kind of a model. That's very tangible, I think. You know, ask yourself if that kind of thing could exist in orthopedics. Maybe it is somewhere now, I don't know, but um, I was pretty impressed with that. Yeah, it totally fits in with your, your criteria, that last criteria of critical introspection. You know, there's not a lot of departments in the world who would do that, have that look at themselves. You know, I, I, some of the best surgeons that I've worked with are the ones who go back through all of their charts, analyze their data, figure out, you know, which ACL patients tend to re-rupture uh, the most, and then, you know, kind of prepare for that, uh, consider doing auxiliary procedures in that population, and, you know, maybe having some, some med student or undergrad student just comb through all your records and perform the analyses for, you, for every surgeon would be uh, the best way of doing that. Yeah. So I would say, you know, by one, one little suggestion, if you, there's something you, sh you want to consider doing when you get into practice is measure everything you do. Find a way to do it, you know, whatever. I mean, the United States, you know, we're, part of our compensation plan is doing patient reported outcome measures with some form of measurement. Um, that's, but that's, let, that's a requirement in, you know, from the government in many instances. Should actually be a requirement for the insurance companies and it should be transparency. Um, I'm less concerned about pricing transparency if there's outcome transparency, because consumers can then decide what they're going to do. And it also motivates people to do better because they'll be rewarded for doing better. So in this ideal world of yours, you know, uh, you're a shoulder surgeon, what, uh, what metrics would you want to collect on all of your patients post-operatively or preoperatively? Well, I, I, I will answer that by saying whatever metrics we create, they have to be relevant to patients first and foremost, not just to us. Okay. So patients want to know what's my chance of having a, another operation. What's your reoperation rate for these kinds of procedures? What's my risk of infection? Um, you know, Porter talks about three tiers uh, th or three tiers of value. Uh, one is the outcome, two is the process of getting there, and three is the durability. No, we don't measure the last for the most part. We don't even measure the the second one, the process. If we're lucky we measure a little bit of the first part until we discharge the patient and never see them again. That's what I would say would be very important. And if you're interested, there's a, a wonderful online journal that's free called the Journal of Orthopedic Innovations, Orthopedic Experience and Innovations. And we published a published, we posted a paper there uh, entitled something along the lines of what can a patient know about their quality of their care? And what I, we did is we looked at the top, top 30 US News and World Ranked Orthopedic Programs. And we looked at all of their um, publicly available information as to did they measure, what did they measure, et cetera. And I actually reached out to all the chairmen of these organizations to ask them if they didn't measure, why not? And when will they measure and what will they do? I had a 50% response rate from the chairs. The rest ignored me despite multiple emails. And the response rate stipulated, well, we can't really measure because there's no meaningful benchmark and people won't be able to interpret the results and et cetera. Bottom line is, Nobody wants to expose their service providers to this one's better than that one. Though you know it's the case. The residents know when they work with someone, this guy's great, not so much, he's got a ways to go. You don't wanna let the public know that, people might not come. So, so the long story short is, we look for a very low bar. On your website, is there any evidence that you measure and do you post anything about patient outcomes? And 27% of all of those institutions met that requirement. Now they posted on, you know, global, you know, data that they got back from the federal government on inf infection rates and things of that nature. But there really wasn't a focus on measurements at all. And I, and I think that's a good place to start if you think about, you know, what these things I'm talking about. It's funny because in Porter's book, he says that with that data available, it doesn't actually influence public decision-making at all. Like with heart surgery, all of that data is available in New York and it didn't influence, but what it did lead to is innovation at the hospital level or the surgeon level. I, I watched a, a, a video you shared about the Australian joint registry where they, they, you know, they have to log every single joint replacement they do, every single orthopedic procedure. I mean, something like that, I, I figure at least in a universalized healthcare system would be easy enough to implement, easy enough to analyze and, uh, you know, look at a large scale, obviously it has the problems with level four data that you talked about, but, uh, you know, the problem with that too, is you're mixing into that quality providers and less quality providers. And, you know, you're not able to differentiate anything there. And really what that's mostly good for is demonstrating inferiority. For example, 
we know from the Australian registry now that there is, seems to be a, um, a significant trend that reverse prosthesis is more durable than conventional arthroplasty. But that probably reflects surgeons' errors in decision-making in putting you know, routine glenoids in, in B2 glenoids or not recognizing cuff disease or a whole host of other, or putting, putting components in the wrong orientation that they're not durable. So that's a little bit of a problem with the registry. I'm not putting it down. I just think it's a, it's a wonderful example, but you have to get more granular than that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, every, every individual surgeon and every individual practice unit could, could do that. And it will drive innovation because people are afraid to look at it because they're going to have to innovate. Innovating is a good thing for, for the patients, which is the most important. What are your takes on the relative strengths and weaknesses of Canadian trained orthopedic surgeons? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I have a bias of sampling. Madari would say there's fragility in my answer because the end is so small. At the University of Pittsburgh, where I was for eight years before I came here, we had a number of Canadian fellows, Paul Marks, uh, Paul Dowdy, uh, a host of others. Then since I've been here, um, Danny Goyle, of course, was a fellow, uh, Jarrett Woodmiss, uh, was a fellow, and next year um, I'll have Ryan Lohr, who is coming as well. I honestly, I think it may or may not represent the Canadian system that they come and they seem to be more mature uh, and well-read and have a better foundation to start with. I can't honestly say the skill sets that better than elsewhere, but it may also be more of a bias that people who really want to come to my fellowship have already been innovating themselves as a product, if you will. So I really can't tell you the Canadians are better than Americans. I can tell you the Canadians that I ta have taken are, are pretty accomplished because most of them, not all, most of them have left and been rather innovative. Danny Goyle is a perfect example. It's like this, you know, you want to give someone the skills to contribute and be creative. And I measure fellows here a lot more by what they do after they leave than what they do while they're here. Just hearing the way you broke down your answer to that question just shows your, your level of thinking. You know, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, they're smarter or, oh yeah, they're more skilled, but you, you went straight to the bias. You probably had an answer jump into your mind and then you, you picked it apart for all the ways that it was biased. And let me, let me just give you an example. I, it, there's a barriers. There are more barriers here now for taking international candidates than ever before. And um, you know, whether you, the type of visa you get and all of that very much affects your ability to train here. But I mean, the year before I had a guy from Christian Gerber's institution, the Balgrist, who was fabulous. I mean, terrific. And actually it's a little funny because when he went back with the new ideas that he had, there was a little bit of tension because they're the experts. They already know what's right. Now you're gonna have someone come back with different ideas. Um, that's good. That means that I did something worthwhile if he feels uncomfortable and there's some tension there uh, because I helped him think outside his own perspective. Yeah, it's a little bit disruptive. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, given that a lot of our listeners are kind of at that senior medical school or early residency uh, stage, you know, what, what book and what piece of advice would you, would you give to them? I'll, I'll send you a picture if you want of my study. There's Absolutely. books everywhere, both in healthcare, outside of healthcare, other things. There isn't one book, okay? Um, I think if, there's a reading list on Codman Shoulder Society, I believe, somewhere buried in there, and, and different things that I think are relevant, but there's not one book. Um, and, and part of the reason I went to Harvard Business School was to understand how to think critically about different things, mainly outside of healthcare, because I wanted to, under, wanted to understand what worked in business outside of healthcare, because just trying to solve problems within healthcare with the same metrics that created the problems in the first place didn't seem to make sense to me. Um, I think the most important thing for people who are listening to this, who are in that phase of their education, is find a mentor. And while that seems trite, it's very difficult. Very difficult to find someone who really cares about your success, who will guide you and help you learn rather than trial by error or trial by that person's error, giving you insight and wisdom. That's really, really, really important. Um, and, and something that I see many people never achieve. The other part is when you go into practice and actually find your, where you're gonna work, you, you, know, you have to choose your partners carefully. 
um, you want to go into a place where you feel as if you belong, you feel as if your mindset, the culture matches your perception of the way it should be. Again, that's easier to say than to do, but a lot of the problems in the US uh, with retention of talent and such have to do with um, people in the wrong place. There's an awful lot of movement here. I mean, people leave and it's not usually for money. You know, they leave for lack of leadership. They leave for lack of mentorship, lack of ability to develop themselves in their careers. Uh, so those are two formulas for success uh, outside the rest of it that everybody has to do anyway. You, know, you got a you got a pretty accomplished CV there. I've heard you talk. You're a phenomenal speaker. So let me let me explain something to you. You know, CV starts to become sort of a dead weight because there is an important concept. I think it and. It, I never knew it at your age, nor do I think many of your peers would, nor do I think they should. And that is that your whole life you spent building a resume, okay? And as you get through that part of your life and you get different titles and all of that which go into your resume, then you start to think about legacy. And it's a whole different story building a legacy than a resume. A resume is all about me, a legacy, a legacy is all about everybody else, you understand? And you, those people that, build a resume that's really giant or they spend their time accumulating huge amounts of wealth but don't concentrate on the other things I think they're if they're if they're at all introspective they wonder what the hell they did with their life you follow me yeah I mean I, my, my immediate question is what what defines a, a valuable legacy what's a worthy legacy well I mean I, I think that that's uh, an interesting question and I think people um different opinions uh, so this is just an opinion uh, you know you know if, if you're wealthy and you endow a building or you endow a medical school or you do whatever I suppose that's a kind of legacy um, but over time those things disappear and frankly everything of what you do disappears unless you're somebody people want to read and quote and then you know <laughs> who knows why do you care anyway but you know, if you look at the uh, the major influencers who came before us, whether it's Albert Einstein, he's quoted frequently, and yeah. that always for his concept of uh, of um, uh, relativity, or Mark Twain, or for that matter, Cicero, a, a Roman senator who had many works on um, different elements of life. That's sort of a legacy. I think the main legacy you have are your children and the people you influence and affect. So, you know, that, but, but that's only for the here. You feel good about that at the end of your career. I, I think one more paper, one more book, you know, I mean, I watched my colleagues and, uh, and, I, and I was there too, I understand. People want to write another article or they run a, write another book. And, you know, can I tell you how many books I put chapters in that sit on the shelf that I never look at? And frankly, by the time the book comes out, there's another book with a similar title. And most of it is um, pretty much um, out of date. So, you know, I, I don't want to, it it's a little confusing in terms of values, but as we grow um, in our careers and grow older and have perspective, our values potentially may change somewhat. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm conservative in my thinking in many ways and progressive in my thinking in other ways, which in the United States would make me an independent if, because we're big on labels here. Um, but, you know, I think what I started looking at, or what I, what I look at, actually been looking at for a while, is what my students do, or what I give them. So, um, that perfect example would be the guy I just hired, Bassem Elisan, who was my fellow years ago, and now has come back to basically be my partner and eventually take my job. So, that's a legacy, I suppose. Yeah, I could see you writing a, a Codman-style book, just kind of about the shoulder, but also... You know, I mean, I tell you, Codman, Codman Society is an interesting thing. I, I created that out of a desire to find meaning in what I was doing with education, because to be fair, the institution where Codman work, where I work, they're a multi-billion dollar giant institution that at the end of the day, it doesn't care who's there. You know what I mean? From a high level, major academic institutions... They, they, would, they would deny this, okay, but they're not stewards of it. And that is, they don't recognize differentiation through talent, in my opinion.
mm-hmm. at least at the level I think talent would appreciate it. They recognize their brand, they're brand builders. You know, where I work used to be partners. It was the name of it. And um, they've now spent $100 million to rebrand at Mass General Brigham because they feel that would be a better brand representing each institution. And at the end of the day, it's just business. Bring the bodies in, build our brand. I mean, you know, and, and to be fair, the people where I work, so many of them are superb surgeons and doctors and etc., cetera, um, who are attracted to the brand identity. Um, but I think over time, when you work in an environment that's sort of this monstrous giant environment, uh, brand tends to tarnish in your value, if you, in your sense of value. I think the people at the very top, uh, they're building from a 30,000 foot view, and the rest of us are running around trying to do our own thing. It's fascinating to see. Um, I've been, since I went to Harvard Business School, I've been very interested in the concept of brand and patient loyalties. And if you want to read a terrific book on brand and loyalties, I'd read uh, uh, Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, his book on, um, on Start With Why. Hmm. So when you read that, you realize that you are the brand. In your whole life, you're building your brand. Now, that brand affects every individual when they go to a job interview, when they look for a residency or a fellowship or whatever, and when they look for a job, because the people who are deciding are looking at your brand relative to all the other brands. You might imagine that they're mostly interested in your GPA or your scores on standardized exams or whatever, but that might be incorrect. Uh, depending on where you're interviewing. They might be looking as well to see how the rest of you is going. And it's very difficult to steward a brand and grow it and take care of every part of it along the way. That's why most of us become focused, you know, on this. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a sort of a sweet spot between narrow focus and ADD. So again, that's just my philosophy.